Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11 is our text. Last week, Pastor Dan was here, Pastor Dan Finfrock from Intensive Care Ministries. I hope you're remembering to pray for their ministry and especially for his trip to Kenya starting tomorrow uh, to teach pastors and lay workers the inductive Bible study method. So keep that in prayer. We're going to return to our studies in Luke and we're in chapter 11. We're going to look at the Lord's Prayer this morning. I guess I should open my Bible too. Now it came to pass as he was praying in a certain place when he ceased that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. So he said to them, when you pray, say, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us day by day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Let's pray together. Lord, most of us have a version of the Lord's Prayer memorized. And even people who aren't Christians, Lord, before they come to know you, they, they've come into contact with this prayer or uh, maybe even memorized it themselves, Lord, for various reasons. And I pray, Lord, that our familiarity with it would not stand in the way of our learning new things about it. That your words would be taken by the ministry of the Holy Spirit here in this place and in our hearts and brought to a, a, a new sense of meaning and value and purpose, brought to life, really, Lord, as your living word. I pray, Lord, that after we leave this place, we'd have a clearer understanding of how to pray, that we would be drawn to you in a more intimate way than we ever have been before. I guess what I'm saying, Lord, is that everything here would be about you, about Jesus Christ, risen from the dead and in love with each and every one of us. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Growing up, I was led to believe that reciting certain formal prayers would have a mystical effect upon my soul. For example, if I did bad things, which I did frequently, I was told to recite a set of memorized prayers a certain number of times. These prayers, along with some words spoken to me in Latin, were supposed to clear me of my wrongdoing and make me acceptable to God. Later in life, I came to the conclusion that no amount of formal praying or foreign languages could excuse my sin. I had broken God's law. There was something wrong with me, spiritually wrong, and it was at a very deep level. I saw how far short I fell from being acceptable to God. And that's when Jesus became real to me. I understood that he was God, but that he came to earth as a man. That he died on the cross at a place called Calvary for my sins. And that he rose from the dead. All I needed to do was to believe in him. It began with a prayer, but it wasn't a formal prayer. It was very informal, very intimate, what you would call a sinner's prayer. It was just words, but they were words from my heart. And by the changes that took place in my life from within my heart... I knew that my words had been heard in heaven. We've just read the Lord's Prayer. 
The Lord's Prayer was one of those formal prayers I had recited hundreds, maybe thousands of times. I see now that it is not so much a formal prayer as it is a form for prayer. It's not wrong to recite it, but it's better to regard it as a model or a pattern for how to pray. We'll organize our thoughts about it around two points. Number one, talk to your father as if you were already sitting right next to him in heaven. And number two, talk with your father as if he were always standing right next to you on earth. First of all, in verses one and two, talk to your father as if you were already sitting right next to him in heaven. Now, the Lord's prayer seems to move from heaven to earth in a very natural break. In verses 1 and 2, you have a sense of being seated with God in heaven as you talk with Him in prayer. That sense changes in verses 3 and 4, and it's like God is standing next to you as you talk to Him in prayer about issues affecting you on earth. And so think of it as we begin. You can live your life as if you are seated in heaven with God. Every spiritual resource in heaven is therefore available to you as you live your life. Allow me to point out a couple of things before we get started on the verses themselves. First, while we call this the Lord's Prayer, it is really the disciples' prayer. Jesus didn't pray this prayer. In fact, Jesus could not pray this prayer because in it you ask for forgiveness. And the Lord had no need of forgiveness and would never ask for forgiveness. It implies sin, and he was sinless and perfect in every way. Now, still, we're going to call it the Lord's Prayer, because that's how it has been known throughout the history of the church. I guess you could, you know, if you want to be smug and uh, superior to others, the next time somebody mentions the Lord's Prayer, you could say, excuse me, brother. Really, that's the disciples' prayer because Jesus couldn't have prayed that for such as... Okay, let's go on now. We don't want to do that. Keep your smugness to yourself and just encourage people. Just as an aside, do you realize how often we discourage people? You know, people come up to us sometimes, they're Christians, say, well, I just read something fantastic in the Bible. God loves me. Yes, of course he does. I knew that 20 years ago. Let's encourage one another. So this is the Lord's Prayer. I understand that the Lord didn't pray it and that it's for us, but we're going to call it the Lord's Prayer. Now, second, the Lord's Prayer, as it is recorded by Luke, differs in certain phrases from the one recorded by Matthew. Some of you, as we were reading through this morning, were adding to it the way that you've learned it from Matthew's Gospel. In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus gave the multitudes this prayer in his Sermon on the Mount. Here in Luke, he gives it to his disciples at a different time. One of the things you conclude from these differences is that Jesus was definitely not teaching it as a formal prayer since it differs from time to time. You know, if you learn something that's a formal statement or a formal prayer, it's always the same. And so Jesus really is not teaching it as a formal prayer, but giving it as a principle for prayer or as a model for prayer. And thus he can uh, change it from time to time, depending on his audience. And so it is a form for prayer. Now we can begin to look at how Jesus taught us to pray. Verse one. Now it came to pass as he was praying in a certain place when he ceased 
one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. Jesus spent a lot of time praying. It's been said many times that if Jesus spent so much time praying, how much more do we need to spend time in prayer? True, but don't miss the underlying motive. Jesus came from heaven to earth. For all eternity, he had been in heaven with the Father and the Holy Spirit. On the earth, he continued his fellowship with them through prayer. In other words, it wasn't a formal activity for him. It was for Jesus his joy to communicate with heaven while physically confined to the earth. I sometimes think that more praying would occur in our lives personally and corporately if we remembered the joy of it rather than always stressing it as a duty and a responsibility. Prayer should never come across as a duty and a responsibility. If it does, we don't understand the first thing about it, and that's what we're going to learn this morning. And so, should I pray more? Should you pray more? Yes, in that, if, if you want to just ask that as a question, but what's the motive for it? Is it because we're obligated to do it? Is it because we'll get something from it? No, it's because we have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, and it is the greatest joy of our life to be in communion and fellowship with Him. Lord, teach us to pray. This is the request of the disciples. Now, commentators and historians say that it was common for religious leaders to teach their disciples formal prayers by which they would have a sense of their uniqueness. And apparently, John the Baptist followed that tradition. How interesting then to notice Jesus had not taught his disciples any formal prayers. They had been with him for quite some time. And and now they come to him and say, Lord, teach us to pray the way other disciples have prayers. They may have felt somewhat second rate, as a matter of fact. Here they were committed to following Jesus, yet they had no formal identifying prayers. And so picture the disciples, if you were, going to temple or going to a synagogue or meeting together with other religious uh, groups. And, you know, maybe the disciples of John are over here and there's different rabbis had their own disciples and there would be a time for prayer. And perhaps, you know, the disciples of John would all launch into their disciple of John prayers. And then Rabbi Hillel and Gamaliel, they would all have their disciples praying their prayers. And then there were the disciples with no formal prayers to pray. And, and you know, I've been in group meetings like this before, ministerial meetings. And people look and it's like, oh, oh yeah, there's the disciples of Jesus. <laughs> no prayers. Nothing to identify them. What kind of a discipleship is that? And, and it goes on. I've felt this before in a different way. I, I, it's, I've made fun of this for years, but it's true. I go to meetings sometimes or meet new people or whatever, and they say, oh, you know, so you're a pastor? Yeah. Where do you pastor? Oh, Calvary Chapel. Oh, yeah, you're those guys that don't go to seminary. <laughs> yeah, that's us. Sure. Yeah, let me show you my clergy card. Yeah, I don't have one of those. I can make one on my computer, but I don't know. 
I mean, if it's really that important to you. And, and you know, I've spent my whole life looked down upon by other ministers. And, and, and it hasn't affected me at all. <laughs> but it's true. And so I, I can relate to these guys. These guys wanted something to identify. They wanted a Calvary Chapel jacket. You know, they wanted something cool that said, I'm cool. I'm part of something. I'm part of a movement. And they didn't get it. And so they finally said, Lord, you got to teach us how to pray before we go to temple again. And Jesus was not interested in formal prayers or formal praying. He was going to introduce an intimacy in prayer that was radical and revolutionary. And then, too, you'd think that one of the very first things Jesus would emphasize with his disciples is prayer. Instead, it seems he waited for them to catch on and to desire to pray. Now, their motives may not have been perfect, as I just established. But nevertheless, Jesus meets us anywhere he can in terms of of what little that we offer him. But he waited until they said, Lord, we want to learn how to pray. We want to know how to pray. I mean, Jesus didn't get up every morning and say, you lazy bums. I've been in prayer all night. What have you done? He didn't do that. He just prayed. He went about his business. And one day the disciples said, Lord, you've got to teach us to pray. And he knew that their motives were a little bit off, but he was excited. I really do. I believe Jesus was excited about this. And if you will go to the Lord and say, Lord, teach me to pray. I mean, if it's possible for him to jump up and down in heaven, then he'll do it. Because the Lord wants to hear this from us. And so he said to them, when you pray, say, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus began with a gracious comment saying, when you pray, I don't want to pass by that so quickly. He didn't tell them they had to. He didn't tell them how often they needed to. He left it up to them. He goes, okay, if you want to pray, when you do it, do it this way. And, and, you know, the Lord is just so full of grace and mercy, not putting a burden on us. Who besides Jesus knows the importance of prayer and how how critical it is? And yet he didn't say anything like he just said, "Okay, well, when you pray, because he's going to teach them something here that's going to make them want to pray. And if you understand this, by the time we're done this morning, you will want to pray. No one will ever have to say to you. You need to pray again because you'll want to do it. Our Father. This was radical. This was revolutionary. We cannot really enter into the fullness of how powerful this was to a first century Jew who had the tradition and history of the Old Testament. God was only called Father a very few times in the Old Testament. And never as a term of personal endearment by a single individual. He was the father of the nation of Israel. Jesus was telling his disciples to call God their father in a personal, intimate relationship. It's the Greek word Abba, which some go so far as to translate daddy. Or, in the language of heaven in Italian, papa. Don't overlook the word our. God is our father. The disciples didn't need formal prayers to identify themselves to others. 
Instead, they were part of a family who were on an intimate basis with God. Their intimacy was far better and far greater than anything merely formal. Back to our disciples in their prayer meeting with all these other groups. And and sure, there might be a sense of, you know, hey, we don't have our own prayers and there's nothing to identify us. But that's not true. There was something to identify them. There was a a lightheartedness, there was a a joy, there was a family spirit about them that formal religion can't give you. Sometimes this is mistaken as being irreverent. More than once in my life, I've been thought of as irreverent. Some of you, if you're honest, leave here on Sunday mornings thinking, he can't say that. It just doesn't seem right. That you could be that familiar with God or, or that, you know, show some respect. And, and, you know, I'm not doing that on purpose. I just really believe that, that I have a personal relationship with God. Intimacy is something precious, something personal. Anyone can call me Gene or Pastor Gene or other things that I've been called. Anyone can do that. But only... My kids can call me dad or daddy, which I don't think they ever did the daddy thing, but dad is cool. Only my kids can call me dad. And, and so there's a, there's a preciousness there. There's an intimacy there. And sometimes I would address Gene as son. I'd say, hey, son, you know, because he's the only one. I mean, there's nobody else like that. There's no, no one else. I can't call any of you that. And you can't call me dad. Better not. (laughs) Here's another way of looking at it. When my kids talk to me, they never address me by saying things like, Oh, provider of all my food. (laughs) Or you who hold the keys to the car. Do you understand? Never can I remember them using the words thee or thou. You know, here they are chatting with their friends online or on their cell phones, you know, having just normal life. And then all of a sudden I walk in the room. How art thee, father? (laughs) So why do you do that with God? Why do people do that with God? Well, we want to show respect. There's nothing more respectful than being able to call your dad, your dad, because he's the only one. I don't want to be called great and merciful father of the household. That's ridiculous. And so this intimacy, this is the heart of what Jesus is getting at. And it's hard for people. They think, no, that can't be right. I've never heard a message on the Lord's Prayer that didn't spend 10 or 15 minutes trying to convince people not to be very intimate with God because after all, He is God in heaven and we're on earth and we're like puny you know, people and we need to show proper respect. People are afraid of intimacy with God. And this is why they need to be convinced to pray. You don't want to talk to a person like that. Somebody who's waiting for you to address them just the right way. Thee, thou, thy... Sounds like fee fi fo fum. I don't know what that is. 
And, and so we, we distance ourselves from God. We call other men father. We, we do all this weird stuff and we put God off. And Jesus says, if you want to pray, figure out that God is your father. He's your dad. Only in a far greater way than anything you could ever imagine. And so I'd ask this morning, is God your father? You can only address God as father if you have been born into the family of God by believing on Jesus Christ to save you. Now the next words are in heaven. The words are literally translated in the heavens. The Bible uses the word heaven in three different ways. There is the atmospheric heavens all around the earth. There is the stellar heavens, what we might call space, the final frontier. And then there is heaven, the dwelling place of God. Your father is in heaven above the heavens. Does that make sense? He's in heaven, his dwelling place, above the stellar heavens and above the atmospheric heavens. And that means he is seated over the heavens, overseeing and supervising everything that occurs beneath him. You are seated right next to him as he is in control over all the universe he has created. Since you are seated right next to God, you have access to everything heaven has to offer you as a resource. Now, it's a lame example, but it's an example I can use. Let's say you came over to my house for dinner. And, uh, you know, we've got this big table spread. It's a special occasion. You're over. And, and if you're sitting there and you say, hey, can I have some more water? I'm going to get you some more water. Uh, can I have some more spaghetti? Sure, the endless supply of spaghetti. Uh, can I have this? Can I have that? And the idea is that you would, you would like to, as a host, have everything that your guest might require so that if they ask for something, you're able to provide it. Now, that's, our, that's you and I in heaven, spiritually speaking, seated with the Lord, only there is no limit to His supply. And so whatever it is you need, and we'll talk more about needs in a minute, whatever it is you need and ask for, God says, oh, well, yeah, I've, I've got... I've got reservoirs of that stuff up here. You need grace? Man, do I have grace, manifold grace, multicolored grace. I've got grace for every possible situation you can imagine. You need peace? I got peace like an ocean. You need love? I got love like a fountain. These are old Calvary songs coming back to me. Remember that? I've got peace. No, it's peace like a river, love like an ocean, something like a fountain. But whatever it is you need, God has that for you. And so it's beautiful. Hallowed be your name. The name of God is always shorthand for his nature and character. Hallowed means to set apart. And so the idea here seems to be that you desire above all else that God's true nature and character be set apart. In other words, you want God to be revealed for who he really is. Alan Redpath, one of my favorite authors, said this, and I quote, First and foremost, I desire in my life and through my life to others to reveal the name of Jesus and the character of God. Now, this radically affects your prayers. Whatever happens, you desire first and foremost to reveal God's grace and mercy and love and forgiveness and long suffering and compassion. Circumstances don't need to be changed. You will want to change within them so that you can reveal your Father through them. And this is important as far as our prayer, because we're human, and, and a lot of times when something happens that's adverse or difficult, 
My first inclination is, well, Lord, man, you're in heaven. You could take this away. You could heal me or heal that person or you could completely remove this trial. But my first thought needs to be, okay, Lord, here I am in the midst of this. This is what's happening. What am I going to do to be able to reveal your nature and character to others in and through this? If it's a healing, if it's a deliverance from that, praise the Lord. More often than not, it's some spiritual quality that the Lord wants to build in your life. And this is where we miss out on prayer. There's a whole group of Christians, there's a whole you know, a chapter of Christianity that is all about teaching you how to pray so that you can get your will on earth. No disease, no sickness, no death to some of them even. You know, you control your own destiny. And God is, is, is up there thinking, well, how does that reveal my name? How does that hallow my name? Sometimes people need to see the strength of character in the midst of the fiery trial of your circumstance. And this is how we ought to pray. Your kingdom come. Now this word come is in a verb tense meaning to come once and for all. Your prayers are to be influenced by the future hope of the Lord's return to earth. From your vantage point in heaven, you realize that the ultimate help for earth and all the people on it is the return of Jesus Christ to establish his kingdom. When the earth is ruled the same way heaven is ruled, then peace and prosperity will be possible. Then he says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Heaven's in pretty good shape from all accounts. There are no problems there. The earth is a mess. It got that way because Adam and Eve sinned and they've passed on their sin to their offspring, including you and I. Human history is the story of God intervening to save the human race from hell and for heaven. Your prayers should be influenced by the fact that God is accomplishing his will on the earth through history. For example, the apostle Peter who heard these words tells us that God is not willing that anyone should perish, but that everyone should come to repentance. And then a few verses later in his letter, right after he says that, he encourages you and I to be the kind of people who are interested in speeding up Jesus Christ's return to the earth. His prayers, if you will, followed this form. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He found himself praying and we'll find ourselves praying a lot more for the spiritual resources we need to make an impact on the world so that more people will come to know Christ so that he will come and set up his kingdom. You do have needs on the earth and we're going to look at them. But first, let's linger in the heavenlies. Isn't it cool up there? It's neat. God is your dad. You're a part of a large, happy family of believers from every ethnic group all over the earth and throughout human history. Seated right next to your dad in heaven, you understand the big picture. You can talk to him about how you can better reveal his name to others and speed up the coming of Jesus to the earth. What a great place to be. Then you can also talk with your father as if he were always standing right next to you on earth. Spiritually speaking, you're seated right next to your dad in heaven. It's not my original idea. The Apostle Paul said this in his letter to the church at Ephesus. He said, God has raised us up together 
and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The idea is that if you're a Christian, if you've asked, confessed your sin and asked the Lord to save you, then from a spiritual point of view, God sees you as if you were already raised from the dead and seated with him in heaven because that's your destiny. And so spiritually speaking, that's our point of view. Physically, you're still on the earth. And so Jesus gave his disciples a perspective on their journey from earth to heaven. Live as though dad were standing right next to you. Your dad is standing right next to you on earth to provide what you need. Verse 3, give us day by day our daily bread. Scholars actually have a tough time translating these words. The particular word daily is only found here and in Matthew's version of the Lord's Prayer. Nowhere else in all of Greek literature. It can mean both today's bread and tomorrow's bread. So which is it? Well, it's probably both. If you're praying in the morning, you need today's bread. If you're praying at night, you're going to need bread for tomorrow. The point is that you live in total dependence upon your father to provide what you need on earth. You can't help but be reminded of the bread God provided on a daily basis back in the Old Testament. You remember after he delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt, he gave them manna or bread from heaven. They were to go out each morning and gather it. And they gathered twice as much just before the Sabbath day because they weren't allowed to go out on the Sabbath day and get it. Everyone always had enough. There was no lack and none left over by the end of the day. If they tried to store it, it would get corrupted and moldy and wormy and such. And so God said, I'm going to give you bread every day and uh, it's going to be just enough for you. No more, no less. Bread is a basic staple. In the context of Jesus teaching you how to pray, you're to be confident that your father knows what you need every day and for the next day, and he will provide that for you. Now, you can draw a lot of conclusions from this. Here are two of them to dwell on this morning. If God doesn't provide something, I don't need it. Now, this is a stunning revelation to me because most of what I pray for I don't get. And I think, well, I need that, Lord. I always need more of some things and less of other things. I'm always really out of balance in my own mind. And I can realize if I, if I get this prayer, this form of prayer in my mind, that just as God provided manna in the wilderness, he's, He is doing that for me. And so whatever He has provided for me is what I need and I must not need anything else. I might want it. I might be greedy for it. It might even be a good thing. There are the things I pray for, they're not always bad things. But God looks at my life and I have to trust that He knows what I need. And secondly, another conclusion, He will sometimes provide a kind of bread I don't want, but that I do need. And so it's not just that he doesn't give me what I think I need. He sometimes gives me what I don't want. For example, suffering. Suffering is a kind of bread, a kind of spiritual sustenance that God will bring into our lives. By which we can grow and be strengthened and nourished. I have almost never asked God to bring suffering into my life. How about you? I know it's coming. I don't need to ask for it. But I mean, you know, 
Uh, some of these people, sometimes I'll hear certain people say, devil, bring it on. Come against me, devil. And I thought, man, I'm leaving right now before. I mean, just what are you thinking? Where are you in all that? You know, but but I very rarely do I ask, you know, Lord, I could use a debilitating disease right now. I just, you know, please bring that. What's up with that? That's insane. However, God will do that, won't he? He will allow those things because he knows I need them. I'm a, I will never understand why I need those things this side of heaven. But I can trust that he knows what I need. Your dad is standing right next to you on earth to help you with other people. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. This is one of those times when the King James Version of the Bible gives us a better translation. If you read these same words in Matthew's Gospel, verse 12 of chapter 6, in the King James it says, Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. The key that unlocks the meaning is that simple word, as. Let's say you're having a problem with someone. I know for most of you this is going to be a real reach, you know, to try and, you know, because I know you get along with everybody. Think of me for a while. Let's say you're having a problem with someone. You're holding a grudge against them or you have some bitterness towards them. Well, your father is standing there right next to you. But if you are out of fellowship with that other person, you're also going to be out of fellowship with God. You see, if you pray, let's just take these words. If I pray, God, forgive me my debts the way I'm forgiving my brother and you're not forgiving him, then you're asking God to not forgive you. It's, pretty, it's a really amazing use of language. And so there you are, oh Lord, you know, thank you so much, and I love you so much, and you know, I'm having all this trouble with this person, I can't stand them, and, and you know, I can't forgive them, but you know, you know, forgive me the way I forgive them. Oh wait, time out, you know, let me take that back. And so you realize what it's intended to do is make you realize that God wants to give you the grace to forgive that person because what he's forgiven you is always greater than what anyone has ever done to you. And that's just the bottom line. That's that's a spiritual principle. God has forgiven you more than others have done against you. You can always forgive with the Lord's help. He's forgiven you so much. He is your example of forgiveness and can empower you to forgive others. By the way, this has nothing at all to do with your salvation. This is not talking about eternal forgiveness. You're already a child of God in these verses. God is your father. If you have issues with your brothers and sisters, you can't enjoy the fullness of your fellowship with your father. Think of a household again, because that's the analogy Jesus is using. Brothers and sisters may be fighting with each other. The father steps in and he deals with that. And he says, hey, you know, we have a problem in our home. We're not going to Disneyland until you guys figure this out. Go down to your room, go down to your room, say you're sorry, get it together. And so it breaks fellowship. The father doesn't come in and he says, okay, that's it. You're no longer my children. There's some neighbors. They might take you in. Uh, You have forfeited your relationship with me and, and I have nothing to do with you. You won't forgive your brother for stealing your Legos. I can never forgive you again. Goodbye. That's it. And see, see you, you know, it's silly. 
But people go, oh, you know, my salvation, what happened? Nothing happened. Nothing happened to your salvation. What are you thinking? It just all that happens is God is saying, I'm right here. You're blowing it. You want me to forgive you all, you know, all these petty things that continue in your life. Well, yeah, I will. But why don't you forgive your brother? And, and you have that fellowship with the Lord. So then you can talk to the Lord about other things other than him always saying, yeah, sure. But what about this forgiveness issue? Well, Lord, I'd like a boat. Yeah, but what about this forgiveness issue? Lord, you know, and so that's the deal. Now, your dad is also standing right next to you on earth to help you through all of your perils. Verse four, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, the word for temptation means a trial or a testing, which if yielded to would lead you to sin. There are two things, two simple things you need to know about temptation. Number one, God does not tempt you to sin. Number two, God does allow you to be tempted. Temptation comes, it says here, from the evil one. Now, this is interesting. It's not to say that you are always or ever being attacked by the devil himself. But as a general observation, it is Satan and not God who tempts. Satan, not God, tempted Adam and Eve. God allowed it. They yielded to it. And it led to sin. Their encounter with the evil one in the Garden of Eden set the stage for all subsequent human history, and that's the reason that you are tempted today. Jesus came to earth. He too was tempted by the evil one, not in a garden, but in a barren, bleak wilderness. Tempted by the devil himself after 40 days of fasting, Jesus relied upon the Word of God and was victorious. He defeated the devil by depending upon his father to help him. Your dad is standing right next to you on earth to help you resist the perils of temptation. You can be confident that none of the temptations that he allows are beyond your ability to resist, provided you depend upon him and not on your own strength. To put it another way, you can follow the example of Jesus in the wilderness rather than the example of Adam and Eve. In the Garden of Eden. Your father provides what you need. And he's standing there to help you in your problems with people and through your perils. Those principles should guide you whenever you talk with him. Now I wonder if the disciples weren't initially just a little bit disappointed with this answer. After all, they seemed like they wanted a formal prayer. And just because Jesus answered them doesn't mean he was answering what they wanted. Jesus frequently does this in Scripture. Somebody will ask him a question, and he'll just talk about what's on his heart. He'll just go off in a completely different direction. And so they were asking for a prayer like John's disciples had. And Jesus said, in essence, just forget about that, and when you pray, say this. And, you know, I can can see those guys... Because I would have been there like that, being a little bit disappointed. Well, you haven't taught us anything. Are we supposed to say that? Are these the words we're supposed to recite? That, that They don't sound like words that we're supposed to recite. They sound more like a form for prayer. So what are you getting at here? But after Jesus died and rose from the dead and after the Holy Spirit came into their hearts, what a fantastic understanding they must have had of these words of Jesus. And as I showed you from just briefly in, a, in the Apostle Peter's writing in Second Peter, 
how he was thinking about these things and following these things. They wanted a formal prayer and Jesus was encouraging them to pray informally, intimately. Because of Jesus, you call God your Father, Abba, Daddy. If you understand this intimacy, you understand everything there is to know about prayer. You can go, and and believe me, I'm not necessarily against some of these things I'm going to rattle off the top of my head, but you can go to prayer seminars and you can go to you know, classes on prayer and, and you, can, you can study prayer and you can listen to the prayers of other people. You can do all of that. But unless you understand that God is your Father in this unique intimacy, you're never going to know how to pray. When you understand that you are now in the family of God and that God is your Father on an intimate basis with you, then you don't need to know anything more about prayer. Then you just talk to Him the way He inspires you to do it. And if you want to know something, you can run through this form in your mind and say, hey, yeah, in my flesh I'm a little bit off base here. I've been asking you, Lord, to remove this from me. I know that you want to strengthen me in it because your name needs to be revealed perhaps in my circle of influence. And so, Lord, just forgive me for my selfishness and and fill me with your spirit. Give me more of your grace and your mercy. Oh, Lord, I want people to look at me and see Jesus. And it's it's a revolutionary thing. You'll never have to be exhorted to pray. You'll have to be asked to not pray. And see, this is, what, this is Jesus. I mean, praying all the time, all night, the guy would pray because he had that communion with his Father in heaven. It was an intimate, personal thing. Never take that away from prayer. And so maybe we need to make some adjustments corporately, personally. We're not being irreverent. We're being intimate with God, and this is what he wants from us. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much this morning for these thoughts. Uh, Lord, probably millions of words have been written, billions of words have been spoken about these few simple words. But none of them are more important than the, the opening words, Lord, our Father. And the, the, just the weight of that, the, the, the majesty of that, the greatness of that, that we would refresh and renew our understanding that the creator of the universe, the great and mighty God, the glorious God, who otherwise we would consider distant and and be afraid of, cower before, seek to find formulas to approach, which is what religion does, has now been revealed to us by Jesus as Father in the most intimate, personal way. And Lord, I can, I can look into our, a, a household, my household, the households of others. And I can understand that there is a respectful intimacy. But the emphasis is on the intimacy, on those relationships which are so personal and so precious. And that's what we share with you. Bring these things home to our heart, Lord, so that we would be not so much men and women of prayer, but men and women 
who understand we are sitting right next to you and that you are standing right next to us. And that anytime we desire, whenever we want, we can address you as Father and have you remind us, Lord, of these things. We praise you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. After our services, you know, we, we make an opportunity for you to receive prayer or to just pray with us. And so we like you to avail yourself of that. Uh, some of you are aware, maybe some of you aren't, that before each morning service, we have a time of prayer up in the prayer room. We don't say a lot about it in, as far as exhorting you because of the reasons I've mentioned. You know, I don't want to get up every Sunday and tell you you're blowing it because you're not there before church in prayer. But just like Jesus, I mean, how excited would it be? How excited would I be and how exciting would it be if just people spontaneously said, man, I just, I just want to spend time in prayer. And I do know that God is blessed and excited and does things when his people pray. There's a verse in Malachi we looked at not too long ago on a Wednesday night where God eavesdrops, listens to his followers when they get together and talk about him. Pray. And, and so there's so many precious metaphors and pictures of just our being with the Lord. All that aside, just think about God being your dad. Hey, I know a lot of people say, well, I had a lousy dad or, you know, my dad was a bad dad. I didn't know my dad. You know what a good dad is then. I mean, it, you know, there's a context. God is the greatest father that you can imagine. Next week, you know, actually the verses next week continue this where uh, we talk about prayer from the point of view of what your father wants to give you much more than any earthly father and so just meditate on that see if it doesn't transform your praying not so much prayer life as if it was something separate from the rest of your life but just your praying and talking with god may god bless and keep you in jesus name amen